I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. One of the most popular episodes of Psychoactive to date has been the one where I invited my friend Julie Holland to serve as my co-host and answer questions with me from you, the audience. So we're going to record another one of those episodes, and we need your questions. Leave us a voicemail with a question as detailed as possible at 1-833-779-2460, or you can record a voice memo and send it to psychoactive at protozoa.com. I'm sure it's going to be a great second go at this. Hello, Psychoactive listeners. I find myself these days doing more episodes about psychedelics, and I think part of that is just I'm so fascinated by everything that's going on in that area. Part of it was just attending two conferences on psychedelics in Miami and New York at the latter part of 2021. One of the more remarkable people I met at these conferences is a woman named Hanifa Nayo Washington. 
She's the co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Fireside Project, which is a psychedelic peer support line, which just sounds like a, a great idea to me. It's been written up in Rolling Stone, Forbes, Esquire, a whole bunch of other places. Hanifa, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you, Ethan. Yay. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be doing this. You know, we had to keep postponing for all sorts of reasons. I'm glad to finally have you on here. So let me just start off. When I heard about what you were doing and met you and the psychedelic peer support line, obviously I'm doing episodes about all the sort of research studies and the researchers who are looking at psychedelics and people are doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, mm -hmm. but you're really operating at a different level. The people you're talking about in a psychedelic peer support line are essentially people who are doing this outside the research setting, doing it, quote, illegally, even if it's nobody's or almost nobody's getting arrested for anymore. So I wanted to ask you, what exactly is this line doing? Who are the people calling? What do they understand is going to happen when they call the line? Sure. Yeah. So Fireside Project runs and operates the psychedelic peer support line. And this line is really for anybody who is actively tripping anybody who's a facilitator or in the psychedelic space holding space for others and wanting to support and understand processing their trip afterwards. So we are supporting people who are actively tripping, we are supporting people who are supporting other people tripping, and we're supporting people who are seeking to process or integrate any past trip. So that trip could be last night or it could be a trip that happened 20 years ago. And this is a service that is free. This is a service that is confidential. We feel as we move into this next psychedelic space in history here, as we legalize and decriminalize, we have to have risk reduction and support. Without risk reduction, the decrim movement and legalization, it's maybe taking a step backward or moving itself into risky spaces. And so we also want to help support people understand psychedelic use is happening. Though we do not condone the use of illegal substances or want people to be partaking in illegal activities, we know that people are using more and more, sometimes for the first time, and often now in these COVID times, people are alone in their apartments wanting to seek healing and relief. And we know folks are having more access to it. And so at any time, if someone has a phone and is in a headspace enough while they are working with psychedelics or afterwards, you can call 62 Fireside from 3 o'clock p.m. to 3 a.m. Pacific time, and an amazing volunteer will be there to support you either through call or text. And we provide emotional support. We're not replacing emergency services. We're not replacing medical services. And we are getting folks calling in. We've just reached a 1,500 caller mark, which is amazing. And about 30% of our calls are people who are actively in a psychedelic experience. And roughly around 60% or so of the other calls are folks who are integrating or processing a past experience. We also get people calling in like prank calls. We get people wanting information. And something that's outside of the scope of our line is supporting people pre-trip. So if someone wants to call in and has a question about, well, how much should I take? And can I mix these two things together? And where should I do this? And where can I get this? We don't provide that type of support. So we're really supporting people during and after and really not wanting anyone to be alone. We see ourselves as a safety net, ensuring that anybody who's actively tripping, anybody who needs support afterwards has at least somewhere to call to be supported and without judgment. We are seeing people calling from all over the nation. We are a nationwide service. We have people calling from East Coast, West Coast, 
Midwest, four corners all over. We're getting calls in from all regions of the country. And we definitely, like many people, have our eyes and hearts in Oregon and are going to be really doing a big push in doing outreach there as Oregon moves into 2023 with implementing Measure 109. Honey, if you just explain to our audience what Measure 109 in Oregon is. The ballot initiative 109 in Oregon makes it legal for there to be psilocybin therapy facilities and facilitators. So folks will be able to open clinics or facilities that support patients with the use of psilocybin. So this measure really is going to have a big impact on access to psychedelic therapy with psilocybin, as well as impacting the entire ecosystem around that in terms of patients coming in, education awareness, growers, and et cetera. Well, let me ask you this. So tell me more about the volunteers. Have all of them done psychedelics? Have all of them had at least one bad trip? Have all or many of them previously worked on support lines, suicide hotlines, or other types of hotlines like that? How do you decide? Who's deciding whether somebody can be a volunteer? Who are you rejecting? What can you tell me? Yeah. When we first started, we were unsure who all would apply for this type of position. It is a volunteership. We invite people to volunteer for a year. We invite people to volunteer for a four-hour shift every week at the same time. And we've had over 450 people apply for what is to be about 70 slots. And we are really looking for folks who have various lived experiences, different identities, and who ultimately, Ethan, really understand the value of peer support. That is first and foremost. Not everybody has done every or has experience with every single psychedelic out there. And I think it's important to just uplift and say there's no monolith psychedelic experience. Everyone has different reactions to different substances and chemicals and amounts and things like this. But ultimately in our volunteers, we are looking for people who, if I was having a really challenging trip experience, when I called in or texted in, is this person able to reflect to me and listen to me and hold me in unconditional care and non-judgment. So we really encourage our volunteers to hang their credentials at the door. We're not looking for one type of volunteer. So we do a four-day training with our volunteers, and it's really focused on removing the ego or removing the self out of the way. We're not wanting to fix people or to guide them. We're not shamans in any way like this. We're really peers and peers who have had their own experiences, their own life-altering experiences or transformational experiences, be that with psychedelics or not, and really are ready to be with someone in their journey. And so we're with them. We're side by side. We're not guiding them to change or not be in a space that might be challenging but we're there to listen, to reflect back, to support, to ask questions that matter. And it's a really special and, I would say, sacred experience to hold that space for others. And so our volunteers also come from all over the world. We accept volunteers from all different countries. We have people in Germany and Australia, the UK and Canada, and all across the United States. All different ages, all different lived experiences and identities. Some folks are deep in the psychedelic space. Some people are students and teachers, mothers and parents. So we really don't have one type of stereotype or 
type of character we're looking for, but really at the end of the day, it's about, is this person able to hold space? Can they be with someone in their experience, whether that experience is challenging or euphoric? And are they able to also grow and be open to growth and feedback and learning along the way? Is it safe to assume that all of the volunteers have had psychedelic experiences or almost all? It's safe to say that all of our volunteers have had transformative life experiences, whether they're psychedelic or not. As our volunteers, they apply. The application process is pretty extensive. The application has a lot of narrative. So we're asking questions about mindfulness. We're asking questions about people's experiences with life-changing and spiritual experiences. We're asking people questions about how they hold space for others, and also about their basic background education, work history, and things like this. And so when we say peer support, we mean that people who get it, people who understand. Yes, people who've had their own psychedelic experiences and or other spiritual or transformational experiences. Because I would think that if I was calling such a line, I'd want somebody who has the types of skills and background and disposition understanding that you're describing. I'd also, you know, hope that person had their own, you know, share of bad trips so they could yeah. on some level empathize. And obviously bad trips take all sorts of directions. I think about two of the bad trips that I had. By and large, mushrooms have been my favorite psychedelic. Mm. And most of the experiences have been very good and sometimes memorable for decades thereafter. But I think about two where I fell into a sort of really, you know, a deep depression. I've never really struggled with depression that much. But when I read about it or talk to people who have it, they'll sometimes describe it as like there's black edges around everything, the dark side of. You can't see the light. You can't see the joy. It's all of that. And I handled those experiences. I think one time I was by myself, one time with a partner, but I didn't really have somebody who was trained to help me out of that. And I used two different approaches. The first time was I had some MDMA on hand. Mm. And when I went into a very dark space, I just took the MDMA and that kind of helped lift it from a dark place into a light place. And the second time it happened was really dark. I was on a beach. Everything was looking like like death and dark. And, And I know you can't run away from a bad trip. And so in that time, what I did was I almost envisioned the bad trip as being like this big, ominous wave that I couldn't run away from and where I had no alternative but to dive into the belly of this mm. big dark wave. And I, and I literally, like in my body, I dived into the sand, but figuratively went deep into that wave. And and it worked. I came out the other side and the depression lifted. And it all of a sudden, it became almost like a 180 where what had been dark and ugly and ominous and, and all of a sudden was becoming beautiful and enlightened. Those are my own experiences. And I've told that to people when somebody's asking in advance, like what happens if it goes in a dark place? Those are the types of advice I give. But I wonder what you think of the advice I gave and whether that's ever the sort of advice that your volunteers would be giving. Ooh, wow. Thanks so much for sharing your experience. That sounds really powerful and similar to some experiences that I've also had. And I think, yeah, this concept of the only way out is through, right? It's like, this is happening. It's mm-hmm. normal. And we're going to get through it. Just So just keep taking a breath at a time, step at a time, and just keep going. And so absolutely that advice is something similar to what we would share on the line and have shared on the line. And 
What's so powerful too is, and you may have heard that in your line of work in your time, we don't believe in bad trips. And we are also not like the bad trip hotline. So we're a support line. And so we provide emotional support and care for folks. And so it's really about listening. So if you had called and with this experience you had or something, I would be listening to you. I would reflect back to you what I heard you say. I would share with you, yes, this feeling of darkness is a normal feeling that people experience with psilocybin and that you're okay and that you're going to move through this experience. I think that when we talk about bad trips, we associate darkness with negativity, with feeling uncomfortable, with bad. And there's so much growth and potential and learning and possibility in that darkness and in that challenge and in that resistance really is what that is. And so when we allow, and like you said, just allow and just go into it, it's magical and beautiful and powerful, the alchemy and the transmutation that can happen. And so I think that people call the line when they are in challenging spaces. People call the line when they are in a euphoric space and just want to know that someone's there with them and that they're tethered right to some sense of grounding in reality. And Mm -hmm. it's really quite powerful. I'm really still sitting with what you shared, and I just really appreciate it. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare when your child fights sleep it can feel like a battle you'll never win imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow 
to a calm and relaxing place to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. I downloaded your app, the Fireside Project app, and I looked at the website, and I noticed some of it, he's emphasizing, as you start off by saying, we're here to offer emotional support. And then a lot of it looks a bit like it's written by a lawyer, saying it's not medical, it's not therapeutic, (laughs) we're not a suicide pipeline. Here's all the things we're not doing. There's the the requisite language that a lawyer puts there to say, cover your ass and all this sort of stuff, and you have to also be upfront with people. But I'm curious, when it goes into a very difficult place, have there been people who have called the lines? since you started a year or so ago who have really been having suicidal ideation or where the volunteer has been worried that this was beyond what they were either equipped or allowed to deal with? Yes, yes. There absolutely have been suicidal ideation calls on the line and our volunteers do go through a four-day training and there are things that are inside the scope of what we do and there are things that are outside of the scope. It's so interesting that you... (laughs) picked up on that there's this sort of two sides of what we're saying in our communication to the world, which is we're here for emotional support. We're here for you. We're glad you're here. And then there's the, you got to cover your ass. These are the hard lines. The other founder, his background is a, a lawyer. So interesting. It's just a reality that we face right now. We do have to be really clear and upfront that we're not medical professionals, that we are not emergency support staff. And we have processes within our protocols to pause calls or stop calls and transfer them out if they are moving in a space where it feels like the suicide prevention hotline, for example, needs to be referred to or emergency services. And it has been growing and a challenge because our volunteers are very empathetic for the most part and very wanting to help. And it's not always 100% clear. Is this call moving to a space where this is outside of the scope? Is this person who is exhibiting suicidal ideation, do they have the means? Are they just saying that they feel suicidal? So there's a lot of gray area there, and we really are very conservative when it comes to that because we want people to have the care that they need by professionals or by people who can support them. And so we have had to transfer calls outside of the scope of our line, and we're thankful the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. We're, we're thankful for the crisis text line and that we have the means to also, within the technology, do live transfers to emergency services as well. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me, so with the volunteers, some of them are going through these very intense conversations. What 
is happening in terms of their processing it themselves? Are there periodic kind of group conversations among the volunteers to process some of the conversations they've had? Are there therapists who have volunteered to assist the volunteers in processing what they had to deal with? What's the, the cumulative learning experience for the volunteers once you've done this 10, 20, 30, 40 times? To what extent is there some yeah. collaborative process and therapeutic process happening among and for the volunteers? That's an awesome question. It's so interesting as the line launched in April. We went from a very low call volume and now we're, you know, each week, you're getting more and more calls, more texts coming through and different types of calls and starting to notice patterns and repeat callers and things like this. So we're really learning a lot as we go. Without our volunteers, the support line wouldn't exist. And so thankful for them. And there's a lot of support during the shift. So a volunteer comes in, when they log in, they're at home or in a quiet, safe place. They log into the system and then they're with a team during their shift. So there's two to three other volunteers with them and then there's a supervisor. And so the supervisor is there to support the volunteers. And so there are updates that the supervisor gives folks, but they're also like listening to two calls. If the volunteer needs that kind of support, they're giving feedback about their approach and also debriefing with either the individual volunteer or with the whole squad. So if there was a challenging call and the volunteer needs sort of one-on-one support, the supervisor that's on duty does that. And then if it makes sense and feels right, the whole team during that time will debrief what was going on. And we've had community meetings where we bring and invite the entire community of volunteers together to share how things are going on the line, to share new protocols, just be witness as they share and process what some of the experiences have been like for them on the line. We are moving in the space where we've actually just brought on a clinical consultant who's going to be available for individuals, but also to support us building and fortifying our protocols as well. And there are spaces where we offer ongoing training. We offer it's like a once a month ongoing training. It's different things. And sometimes it's some of our volunteers offering their expertise, and they're really building a community. One of our volunteers offers yoga sessions. There's a meditation session you can drop into. And so as we grow, we're going to be really building that toolkit of support for our volunteers. Before I turn to asking you about the Zendo project, uh, which is the psychedelic harm reduction project at Burning Man, the last question I wanted to hit you with was, when you think about the experiences you've had as a volunteer taking calls, are there one or two that really stand out that you keep coming to mind in terms of being particularly intense or profound, or would you feel you made an unusual difference or were transformed by being mm. in that experience with somebody going through I love something? this question. There are two calls that kind of stick out for me. One is one of the first calls that actually came into the line. So on our opening day, on April 14th, 2021, the first session it was all uh, three of the founders. We were on shift together that day. And the first call that I got, it was just amazing. So the line opened at like 3 o'clock that day, and maybe at 3.15 or so, a call came in, and it was my first call. And there was something just like really euphoric about like, my goodness, one minute ago, like this didn't exist. And now people know about it and are calling in for support. And I talked to this young man who's out in Seattle, and he was processing a hero's dose on psilocybin that he had experienced two nights before. And it was really powerful to remember my training and to be in that reflective space 
and to be with this person as they were just remembering and walking through and trying to understand. And it, what was powerful about it was one, just being so proud of like, wow, we created this thing and people are calling, but also the power of listening without interjecting my opinions or thoughts or how powerful that was for him. And after about 20 minutes, I really just listened. I asked maybe one or two questions. And at the end of the call, of which he sort of motivated, he was like, this has been great and I feel so much better. And thank you so much. I feel like it's very powerful for me to know that I'm not being judged and I'm, I'm not crazy. And I can't tell you when I'm reading the call logs, because our volunteers fill out call logs after each call, summarizing what they did and what was going on, how many people sort of say this, and we get testimonials right back. People saying, I felt heard and seen, and I didn't feel judged, and I didn't feel like a bad person. So it just felt really amazing to do that. And the other call was maybe a couple months ago, I took a call from a young woman who was in Texas, and she was a facilitator. And so she worked at a facility doing retreat work, and she was a space holder, and she had a heck of a weekend. There was a runner, there was drama going on with staff, and she just was like, I need to talk to somebody. And so it was amazing that she found out about us and she knew we were here, and that I could sit and provide support and offer my insights to a space holder, someone who's out there holding space for other people, and that felt really remarkable and special to me. Thanks for sharing those stories. I saw that you and the others have arranged for Fireside Project to be evaluated by a team at University of California at San Francisco. And so I wonder, are there any preliminary results as yet from that evaluation? And when will a more complete evaluation be forthcoming? Yes. So we're so blessed to be able to work with UCSF and Dr. Joseph Zamaria, who is on our board, and also having the support of Dr. Rachel Yehuda, I think that there are definitely preliminary numbers coming out of that study. So we have, like we said, after each call, we do send out a post-call survey, and that's what the study is based on. We have about 230 or so responses, and from that, we know that 92% of folks who call in or text in feel supported and seen. We know that we are impacting folks calling the ER or 911. If it wasn't for Fireside, um, about 32% of those folks said they would have gone to the ER or called 911. And what's interesting about that is that when we're on the call with folks, we don't necessarily know how intense things are for folks. You know, They're not sharing that with us. So to get those numbers back is pretty powerful. And then we know the rough amount of who's calling in, who's actively tripping, and then what substances or psychedelics folks are using. For the most part, more than 70% of folks who are calling, or 60% are folks who are working with psilocybin. And then it goes like psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca, and then the others. And there's hope, I think, that the results of the study will be coming out, I think, before the summer. How about DMT? I'm curious. You read about people who take this 15-minute blast yes. into the universe and feel like lifetimes, and they come back, and some don't feel like they're getting back to baseline or anything approaching it for quite a while. Have you handled any calls like that, or do you know of other volunteers who have? We've definitely taken some calls for people who have ingested DMT in various ways, and there are a lot of people who ask this question a lot. 
will I ever be normal again? Or will I come back? It's been two weeks or it's been a couple of days and I just don't feel like I did it before. And so we're not going to lie to people and say, yes, you're fine. Everything's okay. And you are going to return back to normal exactly the way you were before. We really try to ask questions about how do you want to feel? And let's talk about what was the experience like and what are you noticing? And I think that there are a lot of people also doing these things alone by themselves and not with a sitter or with a group. And again, it feels super important for the support line to be there to help people at least sit and reflect. And honestly, that's, in my opinion, having that time to sit and reflect and to be in a place of questioning and exploring is where the growth happens and also releases people from the worry. When I met you a few months ago at that Miami Wonderland Psychedelics Conference, around the same time I met your co-founder, Josh White, the lawyer turned psychedelic peer support founder. So tell me about the origins of that relationship and how this project came about in the first place. So Josh and I met in 2019 out at a place called Black Rock City <laughs> at Burning Man in 2019. <laughs> and just a funny, strange story of how the desert brings people together. But one of my very good friends, her sister is friends with Josh. And so my friend and I went to go visit her sister's camp and there was like a small gathering. And in that gathering, Josh was there and that's where we met. And we were with a group of about, I don't know, 12 or 15 people. And we all decided that we were gonna ride our bikes out to the playa and it was at night. And folks are delighting in various things. And we are on our bikes. We're riding out to the playa. And it became very, very intense for a bunch of folks, including myself. And so there was a fraction of us who decided we were going to go back to camp because we just couldn't be out there. It's just people are just like whizzing by on bikes. Everything's glowing. And this is my first time to Burning Man, by the way. Six of us, we ride our bikes back to camp. And just, you know, our grounding, getting in tune with our set and setting, making sure we felt safe and grounded. <laughs> and can I assume you were under the influence of psychedelics during this bike ride at night? You can assume, yes. <laughs> okay. okay. And so we come back to camp. And so I was there with Josh and we were just, just connecting and holding space for each other as we explored consciousness and whatnot. And that was our kind of first real connection. And then we saw each other a few times over the course of the week of Burning Man, exchanged information, and then played a like wicked game of phone tag for about a year. <laughs> and last summer, we reconnected around the concept of what became Fireside Project. Josh is a lawyer and also worked many years on a support line or a crisis line in San Francisco, and I think it's called the talk line for, I want to say, six or seven years, a long time. And he really had the idea of if there was a support line for psychedelics and what would it also mean to ensure that this type of service is available for all people and help to broaden the psychedelic community. And we had all types of conversations for several months. First, we were meeting like every two weeks, and then it was like once a week, and then it was like we were talking every day and just really moving this idea forward and officially joined forces as co-founders. I want to say it was like August or September or something of 2020. 
So what was it about your background that brought you to this and to this connection with Josh? Was it about a deep background in psychedelics or in helping to heal people? Or where were you coming from on this? My interest in this was I saw the need for something like this. And also a deep part of who I am is helping to create healing spaces. So helping to create spaces of healing and wellness. In 2019, I founded a project called One Village Healing, which is a BIPOC-centered wellness platform. And so we're doing Reiki, we're doing meditation, we're doing talk groups, we're doing art therapy, and now moving toward teaching and educating on psychedelic wellness. And I've always had a mind and a heart for what I would call sacred activism. And so really helping to support creating spaces, creating the means and the infrastructure for folks to have access to what brings them alive and to also name and call out the systems and obstructions that deter or get in the way of people being most alive. So at my heart of hearts, I am what I would say a sacred activist. How would you define sacred activism? To me, sacred activism is using and utilizing the gifts, the innate gifts, the tools that one has to support the liberation and healing for all. And doing that without wanting to seek gain or accolades or awards, but because it's the right thing to do with your life force. And so for me, that includes organizing. It also includes design elements. I'm a Reiki master practitioner, so, so supporting active as well as facilitating. So I facilitate on all types of different levels, but really bringing groups together and ensuring that people feel heard and seen, that there's a way for ideas also to be ideated and then moved into action. You've talked about sacred activism, but in terms of the way you think about sacred activism, what's the role of the psychedelics? To me, sacred activism is not something that I like made up. It's a term that's been used. And when we talk about the sacred, we're talking about like spirit and we're talking about interconnectedness. And I'm talking about seeing beyond my lifetime and understanding that there's impact on an energetic level of what a legacy and like what we do and how that might show up years and generations from now. And in my experience within the psychedelic space, it has for me been psychedelics that have opened my eyes and heart to that type of reality and work and that have helped me see and feel that I have bigger work to do that's not just for me and that's not about building a career but it's about helping to support the world and the planet and humanity generations on i read in looking at your background that you spent quite a number of years some years ago working at and ultimately directing a project called amistad america 
But Amistad was the famous slave ship back in the 1830s or 40s, where the Africans who had been enslaved overthrew the captain and the sailors and landed up sailing into the U.S. and being captured. And somehow the Amistad showed up in my Mm. early years as an academic writing about the internationalization Mm. of criminal law enforcement. And it was a remarkable moment when other governments were trying to extradite the Africans who had revolted. And this thing went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was one of the, I think, more elevated moments in the history of the abolition movement where the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the Africans who had been enslaved. But I wonder, what was that Amistad America project? And what was the connection, if you can think about this, between your work on that and the work that you're doing now? Yes, thank you for going there and bringing that forward. I love history and I love the process of remembering that we are all here, that we are all equal, and that we're here to live our fullest lives. And my time with Amistad was remarkable and intense, to say the least. And I was a part of the crew for many years. So I was um, a cook and one of the head educators and became the director of education and then the interim executive director toward the end. And I really believed in the mission of Amistad America, which was about utilizing the ship. So it was a replica of Amistad, Amistad. And the ship was U.S. Coast Guard certified, had all the modern day things, a crew of 15. And literally its goal was to transverse the triangle of trade in real time. And along the way to teach about the history of Amistad and also to talk about how racism and white supremacy exist still today and help people remember their role in combating and fighting that. And so we sailed all over. The ship sailed to England. It sailed to Sierra Leone. It sailed throughout the Caribbean to South Carolina, all the way up and down the eastern seaboard up to Nova Scotia, at really teaching this history. Thousands of people every year. And I do see my life, when I look back at my life and the experiences that I've had, that it is moving in a direction toward, in my own personal life, being more free, having more liberation, helping people to have that, and not forgetting that there are disparities, not forgetting for whatever privileges one might have, that there is bigger work to do, and that it's all of our responsibility to move that forward. And that, for me, is like what we should be up to. And so I carry the work of liberation from my work with Amistad, for sure. It have carried that into my own personal work and into the work that I've done for about seven or 10 years now around working with nonprofits and community-serving organizations to support those organizations to be better, to help People understand what power disparities are happening within their organization and how to reimagine and reconstruct the, those systems. So I've done a lot of work around diversity, equity, and systems change work. And I feel like I get to bring my Reiki mastership. I get to bring my facilitation. I get to bring my liberation work. I get to bring my art and design work into this psychedelic arena, something that I kept hidden for a long time from my loved ones and my community members. I didn't share that I have had psychedelic experiences, that I sit in ceremony, that it's a part of my healing. And I'm wanting to, as part of my work with Fireside Project, 
help people understand, particularly brown and black folks and those who have been traditionally marginalized in this country, that there is possibility for deep healing with psychedelics and that it is available, that it is possible, and that it is our history, right? And it is our, our birthright to it. So we're really helping or have a vision to help broaden the arena or broaden who is in the psychedelic space. So we have plans for launching an equity plan this year, which is very exciting. So our volunteers who are coming from under-resourced communities or traditionally marginalized communities will have access to an equity fund to continue to further their education and training within the psychedelic space. We are also launching an affinity cohort program, which will be volunteers who come from BIPOC communities, as well as the veterans, military veterans, and trans communities to be on call for integration calls for people who come from those identities. We know people aren't a monolith identity, but it's our step forward in offering choice and power sharing. And so those folks will support people who share those identities. So say you've had a psychedelic experience and you really want to integrate and you really want to talk to somebody who shares that identity. So as a black woman, I want to talk to somebody who's black. I now, you know, that we're going to be launching this in June, can call or text and say, hey, I would like to speak with someone from this identity to do an integration call that's going to be available. And that's just the beginning. We also want to, again, resource those volunteers to have access to the equity fund so that if they want, they can continue their training and education within the psychedelic space so they can be leading research, so they can be become facilitators, so they can be writing the books, so they can be writing the articles and really expanding who is in the psychedelic space. Because right now it is predominantly white, predominantly male-led, and I know in my heart that the people who have suffered a lot and maybe the most in this country are those who are coming from communities that were enslaved, communities that were persecuted, communities that don't have wealth. And it is a deep desire to ensure that there are pathways for as many of those people to have access to psychedelics and the healing that they can offer. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but 
As they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on Story Button, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. If you look at the latest local ballot initiatives to decriminalize psychedelics, two of the places that happened were in D.C., which is half black, and Detroit, which I guess is where you're from, which is three quarters black. So, you know, you get to put these popular initiatives and people are voting for them. And you're beginning to see some famous black people, more like in sports, like, you know, Mike Tyson with his toad medicine experience yeah, the, yeah. or the NBA star Lamar Odom mm-hmm. talking about his experience with some of this sort of stuff. So we're beginning to see it. Why has there been this kind of psychedelics renaissance emerging? And I oftentimes credit, you know, Rick mm-hmm. Doblin and MAPS and all their work. And I credit the other network of researchers who are doing this sort of stuff. Of and then I credit also, I think, Michael Pollan with this kind of breakthrough crossover book that many people have never done psychedelics are reading, but I've been thinking about it. The other key thing is when you have guys like podcast hosts, like Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss or Sam Harris, who have huge reach, each reaching different communities, but millions, tens of millions of people, and people are just tuning into them because they like listening to these guys and their guests. Is there anybody out there in a prominent way among Black media folk who are doing what, say, Rogan or Harris or Ferris are doing, or anything resembling that as yet? Because it seems that might make a significant difference. I would have to say no, not yet anyway. There's a carefulness that I believe that Black folks have to have when transversing things that are illegal. So there's a Mm -hmm. privilege, right, that we don't have or don't act upon when it comes to openly talking about the use and using psychedelics because of their legal status. And so I know that there's also a very healthy underground that, in my experience, is full of brown and black folks who have whole systems and networks and 
are providing support, are growing, are distributing, are sitting in ceremonies. So there's, a, I think, a desire to see more people above ground who aren't sort of holding the banner. And I think that there are and has been historically people of color utilizing psychedelics for a long time, but people aren't just out about it. They're not on the radio or writing articles or being public because of the legalities. The work that you're doing and a few others are doing is very important. And I see some of the folks who, Black people who go to Burning Man are talking out a bit. And I saw Jada Pinkett Smith doing an interview, right, about her psychedelics use. So the words getting out, and I understand what you're saying about the reservations, right? The fact that Blacks have been disproportionately targeted by the drug war are more vulnerable all makes sense. But nonetheless, I think sometimes in the way that Michael Pollan played a key role, or you think about the role that Michelle Alexander, when she wrote her book, The New Jim Crow, it was other people have been making similar arguments, but Michelle stood out with a book, the right time, the right place, the right person, framing the argument in a way that put it together that really catapulted things forward. I remember when Black Lives Matter emerged a number of years ago, one of the things that was so inspiring for me is that I saw it from where I was sitting as almost one of the first sort of Black civil rights manifestations that was fully embracing more or less the totality of drug policy reform and becoming mm. our uninhibited mm -hmm. allies on drug policy reform. Now, the psychedelics piece wasn't really part of that discussion, but I think we need that sort of weaving together of different strands of drug policy reform, social justice, criminal justice with the psychedelics area. Yes. When I was first coming into about, like into this space of people wanting me to speak and whatever, and I would get these questions about what do we need to do to have more brown and black people in the psychedelic movement and how's the movement going to, I was like, what movement? There's a psychedelic movement? It was very curious language to me because when I think about movement work, I was like, has this movement been going on since the 60s? Like, when did this movement start and who's leading it and what are the objectives and what are we asking for? I think that there's a lot of different lenses and a lot of different opinions about what the psychedelic spaces or movement or industry, people are putting it in all these different buckets. And so I think that there's a lot to be said around how do we really move things forward in an active way and help to amplify the objectives of all the goals of these different pieces. To me, ultimately, all yeah. movements are one movement. It's about liberation. Everything is moving people toward greater liberation, greater freedom, greater access to be resourced, to be healthy, whole and happy. And yes, I'm all about how do we pull in psychedelics into the conversation when we're talking about social justice so that it's not taboo yeah. or dangerous, but actually is a, a tool for our well-being as brown and black folks in this country. I mean, I tell you, when people would ask me who is the drug policy reform movement, and one of my answers to that would be, it's the people who are there. And it's you're showing up in this space in the last year or two is making a difference and other people beginning to show up. And I think we think about indigenous folks. We think about Native Americans and peyote. We think about ayahuasca and Latin America and all of this. There's also with Iboga and the Bwiti tradition in West Africa. So it's not as if this is entirely alien. In fact, some of this tradition comes from the same part of the world where many African-Americans who came here in, in shackles originally came from. All of our people come from land folks. We all come from folks who had tribes. We all come from people, literally like why we created Fireside Project in the name is that for millennia, people have been gathering around the fireside, 
in ceremony and in healing, in community. We all come from people who utilized medicine, plant medicines, whether they be psychedelic or not, for our healing and our advancement. And so it's a reclamation. And we live in a global society now. So we don't have to just be like, okay, you came from this country or these region, and so you can only use this. But it's like, how do we have reciprocity like you're lifting? Um, how do we acknowledge our roots and understand that like this isn't foreign or alien to us? And there's so much around education that needs to be done in a deep and powerful way about undoing from the war on drugs and not just facts and figures, but like in a somatic and in our body. And then how do we build true relationship again with psychedelics in a way that is helpful to us and for generations to come? Yeah. Yeah. I feel optimistic about where this is headed. And I just think, and especially on the issue of more Black people showing up and being part of this in the way that you have, and then some of the major figures in sports and entertainment making a difference. I do hope a book's going to be forthcoming one of these years about Black people and psychedelics that really begins to tie it all together in terms of the ways that you've been doing in our conversation. When you were speaking, the person who came to my mind immediately I saw her speak a couple of times, and I'm so grateful in my life, is Dr. Joy DeGruy. Her work has been really foundational to how I view and think about systems and how they can change. And I remember her talking, and she was sharing a story, and one of the things that she shared was like, you got to find your lane. <laughs> Doing movement work and systems change work, find your lane and stay there. <laughs> find your lane and stay in it, and then just go. And I think about that often. I think about that often as a recentering, as fuel um, to continue my sacred activism. And I think about, okay, now what if I don't stay in my lane? What if I want to go be in this lane over here? I want to be in this lane over here. So it's, if I'm swerving and switching lanes every five minutes or whatever, am I also belaboring someone else? Am I slowing down the movement because I can't decide what lane I want to be in and how I want to contribute? And so for me, I think about there has been war and turmoil for humanity from the beginning, however far you want to go back. And I think where we are now, I truly believe that we need constant resiliency work physical resilience, spiritual resilience, to stay, if you're showing up to change, if your eyes are open and you can see that these systems are broken, how do we build new ones? How do we build access? And so for me, I think those who've decided to be in the space of a psychedelic healing, a psychedelic wellness, no, it's not a luxury to me. It is about creating awareness, and pathways in access and educating people about not only the science of psychedelics, but also about how they can help and support in the long term one's spiritual and physical resilience. And it's also about this idea of coalition building and know that psychedelics aren't a monolith, that they must work in tandem with other tools and with other movements. And I am someone who can do many things well. And have struggled, and I've been that person swerving on the highway between lanes, the highway of life. I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. And so I feel like I have 
arrived mm-hmm. in a very outway about being an advocate and an activist for access to healing spaces, including psychedelics or use of, of psychedelics. And I think if I had advice for other people who are listening, it's be aware that systems are broken and shit's fucked up and that there's work to do. Choose what work you want to do and do it well and keep yourself fortified and healthy. Good parting words, Hanifa. So listen, thanks so much. I'm going to send in my contribution to Fireside Project now that you've been on here. And I just want to wish you and your co-founder, Josh White, and all the volunteers and others involved with this project more power to you. I hope it grows and grows beautifully. I hope the evaluations come back powerfully and the word gets out. And I hope you find yourself leading and helping people enter this space who just a year or two ago would not have imagined entering it, but really need to be, and that good things will happen there. So thank you. Thank you. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it, or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at one 833 779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivik Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, join me for my conversation with Professor Philippe Bourgois, the brilliant and courageous ethnographer who studied drug users and drug dealers for almost 40 years, including almost 20 hanging out with crack dealers in East Harlem and Philadelphia. Every single large and even small American city has a phenomenon of a, of a racially and class divided set of segregated poverty. And that is not normal. I wanted to show what its effect is on the people scrambling to survive. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, 
on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.